Dr. Sarah Bell is one of my professors at Utah Tech. Dr. Bell has extensively studied dimensions of women's sexual health and well-being, including sexual desire, sexual pleasure, and orgasm, the influence of social and sexual norms on women's sexuality and sexual pleasure, how specific sexual contacts such as hookups influence women's sexual pleasure and sexual health, use of mixed methods designs, both qualitative and quantitative, to study women's sexuality using phenomenological approach. I asked Dr. Bell how she got started in all of this. We talk about feminism, the waves, and how this affects us. We talk about where we're going as feminists. We talk about the orgasm gap and female pleasure. We talk about female orgasmic disorder. And Dr. Bell shares with us everything we need to know about female pleasure. I hope you love this episode of the Vagina Blog Podcast. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by me. I am thrilled to introduce you to Ruby, my new vulva plush pillow for all your educational needs. Ruby is unique because she comes with her own removable clitoris, the perfect tool for teaching all about female pleasure, how to use period products, and what the entire clitoral anatomy looks like, and more. You can find Ruby on my site, thevaginablog.com. Check her out and let me know what products you'd like to see next. If you followed me for any amount of time, you know I love the Jovi patch. Jovi uses nanotechnology to intercept messages caused by discomfort, giving your brain the ability to better manage and cope. No wires, no magnets, no medication, just neurocapacitive coupling technology. Go to meetjovi.com and use code THEVAGINABLOG20 in all caps to get $20 off your Jovi purchase or head to the show notes for a quick link. Jovi is reusable, drug-free relief for anyone suffering, especially with menstrual cramps. Hello, everyone. I am here today with one of my professors, Dr. Sarah Bell. I have had the privilege of taking health psychology from her, and I'm also now in her gender studies class. It's the psychology of women and gender. And I'm really excited to sit down with her today and talk more about a whole host of fun subjects in feminism and female pleasure. So will you introduce yourself? Give us some background about how you ended up doing what you're doing and tell us everything. Um, everything. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, um, I did my undergrad at the University of Utah, and, um, I guess that's kind of where I got into this work, it, because, um, I was taking classes in psychology and gender studies, and I met Dr. Lisa Diamond, who studies sexual fluidity, and started working in her research lab, and then, um, from there I went on to... I decided I wanted to like keep doing it, and I went on to um, do my master's and PhD at the University of Michigan, where I um, I studied for a little bit with Dr. Sari Van Anders, um, who I think has moved on to Queen's University in Canada, mm. and um, but spent most of that time with Dr. Sarah McClelland, who does a lot of like qualitative research. Um, so yeah, it was. Was that? Yeah. Was there another part to the question? Yeah. So what what got you into this in the first place? Oh. Um, probably feminist rage. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing that gets all of us into this. <laughs> you know, there it is. Um, actually, um, I'm debating on like, yeah, how, I don't know. So I started 
taking the gender classes at the University of Utah because I felt like it was gonna um, like help me think about things that I hadn't really I didn't have language for mm-hmm. or hadn't really put into words and certainly hadn't really encountered other people that had talked about it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, and so that you know um, I don't know, I guess it just sort of resonated. And yeah. then the more you start, the more you have language for these things and start to notice them, the more enraged you are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think that eventually I sort of saw that um, sort of connection between feminism and sex research. Mm-hmm. Because there's certainly sex researchers out there who are doing like evolutionary psych and are studying things from a very biologically deterministic mm-hmm. framework, which often is very misogynistic. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted to study sexuality in a way that sort of centers women's experiences mm-hmm. and not um, in their voices in particular about their experiences. Because we're missing that. Yeah. As, like uh, We're going over Freud right now and... I'm doing, you know, history of psych, and it is so male-dominated. And like in medicine, Mm -hmm. like, women and the female body as a whole is really just looked at as the broken version of the male body. And it's too complicated. We can't possibly... And I'm kind of at the point to where I'm just thoroughly disappointed in all of them. Like, where is the challenge accepted in all of that? If you really think it's so complex and hard, like, you really just still don't want to take a stab at that? Yeah. It, It would not be difficult to do a lot of times even research that considers women's menstrual cycle just breaks them into two groups pre-ovulation post-ovulation and no big deal go from there yeah Yeah. so let's talk about feminism i'm we're i'm currently in class with dr bell and studying feminism so can you kind of go over the history of feminism for everyone who doesn't really have a good understanding of it sure so I think of it in terms of like mainly the first three waves and then there's the first three waves are like the most well-defined certainly although there's sort of like maybe there's a fourth wave mm-hmm. um, so the first wave of feminism is is women seeking the right to vote and very much um, the arguments at the time of the suffragettes were very much focused on well we deserve the right to vote because we are white women and we're like white men and so it was it was racialized in that way that they felt they could play on their their whiteness to mm. obtain this privilege to vote um, so you know but that was successful we got the right to vote so mm-hmm. yay um, and then the second wave of feminism sort of comes about in like the 1960s 1970s ish and it's really focused on women's right to have equal access to education equal access to sort of um, the workforce, uh, being able to control their reproduction, you know, have mm-hmm. access to birth control if they want it, that kind of thing. Because that also plays into women's ability to pursue the life they choose. Absolutely. Being able to control it in whatever way they see fit. Um, and at the time, birth control was, like, really new, so they were really, you know, that was a big thing. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and also in that era, you get sort of the anti-pornography mm. feminists like Andrea Dworkin, um, who were really advocating for censoring pornography and that pornography is derogatory towards women, which mm-hmm. it can be, yeah, you know, absolutely. for sure. 
And and so I feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, it's kind of seeing women who participate in pornography as perhaps having like internalized Misogyny. sexism or misogyny. Yeah. Just seeing themselves in the same way that men see them mm-hmm. as sex objects. And that's why they choose this mm-hmm. career. And then you get third wave feminism um, that's, you know, really focused more on kind of intersectionality mm-hmm. and thinking about identities as unique combinations. So you can't really talk about what it means to be, I mean, you can talk about what it means to be a woman, but inherently every woman has other identities. What it means to be a woman is different if you're white, if you're black, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, Latina, all of that makes your experience in the world different. So those are, um, but an, another thing that comes along kind of with third wave feminism is a greater emphasis on autonomy mm-hmm. and the seeing women as having the ability to sort of choose things that others might see or second wave feminists might see as oppressed. Yeah. So there's a little bit more embracing of like sexual freedoms. Mm-hmm. So a third wave feminist might say doing Pornhub, etc. is not doing Pornhub or doing um what's the word I'm looking for? OnlyFans. Oh yeah. Is that could be an empowered choice that's not necessarily mm-hmm. internalized sexism. So and and the opposite. If I want to wear an apron mm-hmm. and bake in my kitchen, yeah, right. it doesn't mean I'm a bad feminist. Right. So because yeah. I I feel like you and I were kind of we grew up in second wave. Yeah. So um, like at the end of second wave. Yeah. Caught the tail end of that. Yeah. Have lived through third wave. Right. Yes. And in third wave, we're I feel like wading through. You know what this looks like because. Yeah. For me, feminism was really presented as, like, you hate men, you take on very masculine identities, you dress more masculinely, yes. you you have to do all these things to externally identify as yeah. a good feminist and, right. you know, to be feminist. And third wave, I feel like we're throwing a lot of that yeah. out. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of expectations that were created in the sort of 1970s second wave feminism era about what it means to be a good feminist, mm-hmm. or how to know if you are really liberated, yeah. right? Yeah. And especially also, this is where like sexual pleasure ties in. Mm. Um, and I talk about this in one of my articles is that uh, one of the things at this time was focusing on women's right to have orgasm, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. This was not a conversation that had been going on before that. Yeah, this is so a big deal. You got to have that conversation, but it became sort of entrenched with feminist identity. And women's liberation from mm-hmm. the feminist perspective that in order to really own your sexuality, you have to have an orgasm, mm-hmm. especially clitoral orgasm, because that had been sort of taboo. Mm-hmm. You know, people and medical experts like Freud and whatnot had emphasized vaginal orgasm yeah. as though they come from different. <laughs> it's anyway, all the clitoris. It's all the clitoris. <laughs> <laughs> and so. It was a big deal and important that at the time they made that argument. That women yeah. have a right to orgasm and they have a right to clitoral stimulation mm-hmm. and you that's go get that. juvenile. Yeah. yeah. You go get that orgasm, honey. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. an important argument at the time. But as I argue in my paper um, that was published in 2017, that um, I think it's called When, If, and How Young Women Contend with Orgasmic Absence. But... If you create this pressure that, you know, you have to have orgasm in order to be truly liberated, then it's an extra sort of, okay, if I don't have orgasm, or if it's not important to me right now, Mm -hmm. that means I'm not feminist, or that means I'm not owning my sexuality. Mm -hmm. 
and that's just an extra sort of pressure. At the same exact time as this pressure is sort of mounting in women, and they're aware that not only are they entitled to orgasm, they're expected to have orgasm, mm -hmm. you have men becoming aware of the orgasm gap. Mm -hmm. So men are, like, in lay consciousness, men are aware that there's this big gap between women and men, and they're like, oh man, maybe my female partners are faking, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so they start to develop this sense of achievement that if their partners orgasm, that they feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and actually there's a paper on this from one of my peers who was in the program with me at the same, at the same time. Um, and, and so that's a lot of pressure for women. Suddenly totally. men are aware that they're not having orgasms or they might be mm -hmm. faking it. They're really wanting you to orgasm not so much because they want you to have fun goals but goals we have goal-oriented like, intimacy yes. happening here yeah and and feminism wants you to orgasm yep. and it's a lot of pressure for young totally. women who already may it's just less easy for young women mm -hmm. to have orgasms and so that's um so what i argue in that paper is that like a layoff <laughs> yeah know? like it should be pleasure focused right. whatever that looks like and when you make it so goal-oriented like that, it, it's harder to yeah. orgasm. Oh, yeah. So it's it's about women feeling, yes, entitled to it, but not pressured to have it. Mm -hmm. That they can have it if they want it, and they can also not have it, and it's not, you know, the end of the world. Yeah. Well, I, and we have so many systemic things against us, because I at that point, I don't even think they'd fully discovered the full anatomy of the clitoris. I mean, think course, yeah. we have now. Um, so we've got that going on. And then there's the confusion of, like, what's the G-spot? What's this spot? What's that? It's, it's all actually clitoral stimulation. Like, oh, really. No, the G-spot thing kills me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, there's some mystery organ in your pelvis. No. no it's, <laughs> it's just, just the, the, the backside. <laughs> so there's all that. There's the layers of that. And then we do. We have this goal-oriented uh, sex and goal-oriented uh, any intimacy. And it's so frustrating. So... I love that. I feel like we've evolved beyond that. We're now hopefully moving towards pleasure being the measure of our sexual interactions and, you know, our relationship with ourselves and just chasing pleasure, ideally. Yeah. Do you feel like we're doing a good job moving in that direction? Um, I hope so. I think so. I think that more and more people who are, I feel torn between second and third wave feminism because mm -hmm. I understand the arguments of both. And I was sort of raised in the in-between mm -hmm. generation. Um, but I think that there's more and more people going into sex research and coming into sort of, you know, I guess, positions of power. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. They are of the same generation that can see both sides and are not sort of, that are more open about um, creating room for diverse experiences yeah. as being okay. And not having a standard experience. Yeah. That you have to have this sexual experience in order for it to be okay. Successful. Successful. Or, yeah. 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 That's awesome. So with the orgasm gap, do you feel like that's getting better? Do you feel like we're getting, we're getting better about talking about female pleasure? Yeah. I think it is getting better. I think that women feel probably... They're more aware of it. They're partners are aware of it. I think they feel more um, ability to pursue the sex that they want to have and to, you know, if they need to self-stimulate or use toys or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but there's always, what has not changed is 
the stigma around women's sexuality mm -hmm. in terms of frequency of partners and things like that. So even women who like hook up, mm -hmm. you know, they may not be having orgasms. A lot of them are not having orgasms, mm -hmm. but they sometimes pursue multiple, like the same partner, having mm -hmm. a consistent hookup partner because it, you know, what I, this is why I discussed in my dissertation that it shields them from societal stigma, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like I've got a boyfriend, but not mm -hmm. because I'm hooking up with one person. Yeah. Um, so I think that it is getting better, but I think that women still face a lot of stigma yeah. over their sexuality. So this is a good question for you. Um, should we ever fake orgasms? Yeah. I, no! I <laughs> so here's the thing. So I think that on the one hand, um, you should, it's good to be honest because if something's not working for you, it's good to tell your partner. Mm -hmm. It's good for them to know because then they're, they're going to change it up, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But not every woman is in a relationship that is healthy. And sometimes women fake because... It's dangerous, not yeah. cool. Yeah, that's and the so, only time. And like, right. if you're in a dangerous situation, obviously, do whatever yeah. you can to get out of it. But, right, yeah. yeah. And sometimes, frankly, you're just too tired. And you don't so, want to like, so have a high conversation. Five <laughs> See, that was job. fun. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Like, what if then they like rope you into like a 30-minute you know, ego boost. Like, why wasn't it good for you? I don't know. Like, I could see, like, being like, that was great. Fantastic. Yeah. You you rocked my world. Let's go to bed. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just lazy, but I think that it's good to be honest about it. If I agree. you feel that it's safe to do so, it's good to, like, let them know that that's yeah. not working. I, especially in a partnership situation. Yeah. Because if you do fake, you're reinforcing behavior that didn't work. And so yeah. they're just going to do that again. And then suddenly right. 10 years have gone by. <laughs> the number of guys I've talked to about my research who've said, all my partners have orgasmed. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, they have not. See, that stresses me out. I'm like, <laughs> stop lying to these yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, I've never had a woman fake all every guy. A woman fake. Yeah. I guarantee it at some point. Yeah. Maybe even every day. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not, but I hope you know. not. Yeah. So let's talk about sexual dysfunction. What signs are we looking for? What what are what are we concerned about in terms of sexual dysfunction within the right. realm of women's health? Um so the the definition or classification of like women's sexual like arousal disorders or orgasm disorders has changed, obviously, with different iterations of the DSM. But a key criteria is it bothers her. She mm -hmm. has personal distress about it, not her partner, right? This isn't, hey, my partner's upset because I'm not orgasming. That mm -hmm. should not be yeah. part of the criteria. It should be, I want to orgasm. Mm -hmm. Or I'm having, like, lubrication issues, and this is bothering me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's, like, the most important thing. It's, it's something that's affecting her. Yeah. And so it's really, um, there's not really, and this is also the case with like male, you know, disorders as well. Mm -hmm. It's not like we really set a criteria, like you need to be, if you're having five orgasms a week, then you couldn't possibly have, you know, this disorder or that disorder. Yeah. It's really about what you're comfortable with. If you feel like something's dysfunctional, it's causing you distress in mm -hmm. your life. Um, yeah. And there's also, like, maybe, well, there is sort of, like, how long has this gone on for? Yeah. You know, was it just last night or was this, like, six weeks, you know? Yeah. That kind of thing. What do you feel like are some of the most common uh, sexual dysfunctions that you've seen or studied or? Mm -hmm. Probably, I mean, not, not that I've studied personally, but mm. 
I would say that, um, so if you, if you look at the criteria for, um, male orgasmic disorder or premature ejaculation, mm -hmm. so that one always surprises me. There's not like a really great hardcore definition for premature ejaculation, mm -hmm. because if, let's say, somebody's ejaculating after like 30 seconds and both him and his partner are happy with that, yeah. then it's not a disorder. Mm. But if the, if one of them is unhappy, or he's unhappy with mm -hmm. it, with it um, and I think it's like, I want to say it's less than two minutes or 20 strokes, something yeah. like that, yeah. then it counts as... Um, Premature. Yeah, and it's like different depending on the study you look at. So it's kind of a vague definition, mm -hmm. but that one interests me. Um, I do have an issue with like the female orgasmic, sorry, is it the female orgasmic disorder? Just because, like, and I think Brie Foz mentions this in in her her book, mm -hmm. you know, um, that as it stands, like forty percent of women would meet the criteria mm -hmm. for female orgasmic disorder because they don't regularly orgasm, mm -hmm. and that's how can that be? Yeah, I criticize this too in my in my twenty seventeen article. Um, 40% of women are not dysfunctional. Yeah. If that's 40% of if 40% of women... That's the too women, high of a number for yeah. it to be considered. Yeah. It, what that is is normal. That's yeah. normal. Yeah. And it's normal for women to not have orgasms. And it's if it's not bothering them, it's okay. Yeah. You know? Um, well, it's hard, too, because you have to then follow up with what... Because they're seeing much higher rates of orgasm in masturbation, in female, yeah, of female partnerships, yes. you know? So what is the issue? Is it the women themselves, or is oh, it no. the activities they're participating it's, in because of societal standards? It's 100% the activities. Uh -huh. So um, research shows, you know, like you said, that women, the orgasm gap in same-sex relationships, women with, partnered with women, is... Mm -hmm. it's, is much smaller. Much smaller. And obviously with masturbation, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you give it a go and it doesn't work out. Yeah. But, um, Significantly higher rates of success. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, so the, the sexual script as it exists between women and men is that, so a script is um, a set, like a social situation in which there's a set of linear chronological behaviors from each person involved, right? And we all sort of have these scripts. We sort of know what they are by experience or by like watching them in movies or hearing people talk about it. So the sexual script between women and men, it has changed over time a little bit, but it's, it's basically, it, it starts with kissing and touching, disrobing. Um, there might be mutual oral sex, but there's usually she gives him oral sex. Mm -hmm. And then there's penile vaginal intercourse until he has an orgasm and then it's over mm -hmm. it's over mm -hmm. it doesn't matter mm -hmm. like if she didn't have an orgasm he's the script does not include him then helping her finish mm -hmm. so the behaviors that are part of our sort of shared sexual script are those that do not prioritize her pleasure and prioritize his pleasure mm -hmm. um, it's changed a little bit like I said the oral sex thing it's more common now that there's mutual oral sex than I there used to be I would say in amongst like my friend group yeah. That's a normal part of foreplay for them, like yeah. like for them to receive. Yeah. So, which really is exciting to me because that, I feel like that means progress has happened. Yes. Usually, what we see, um, and what I've seen in my own research, is that it's more likely 
that she will give him oral sex to completion mm-hmm. until he has an orgasm, then he will for her. If mm-hmm. he gives her oral sex, it's usually a prelude to penis and vagina sex. Totally. And so it's like, I'm going to go down on you for two minutes, mm-hmm. and if you don't come in that time too bad, mm-hmm. I'm go- we're going to move on to what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's all about these behaviors and changing the sexual script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So... You know, from a parenting perspective, from just an overall social perspective, what do you feel like we can do to continue to help improve? I mean, obviously talking to your children about sex is so important, but like I look back at when I learned the tiniest bit that I did about no one mentioned female pleasure to me when the idea of intercourse was like introduced. And I still remember, you know, sitting with my college roommates and explaining to them that women had orgasms. They had no idea. No idea. Yeah. These are well. these are kids that are technically adults in their 20s that did not know that female orgasm was even a thing. They thought sex was just simply a thing you did for a man and also to get pregnant when you wanted babies. Oh. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. I feel like we've come a long way yeah. since then. You know, it's been 20 years since I was right. in college. But, but what do you feel like we need to do better? I feel like, first of all, there has to be comprehensive sex education in every mm-hmm. single state in the mm-hmm. nation. Amen. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess parents could opt out if they want, but the fact that, that what in many states, and this is what I received when I was in public education in sixth grade, they just taught us about periods and that was it. Yeah. And, um, so, but parents, I mean, you have to choose the right age for your child Mm -hmm. and every child matures at a different rate. I would say when they start asking questions, they answer them honestly. Yeah. I mean, if they're four and asking where babies come from, I would keep it, like, very general. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, But as they get older, if they start asking more earnestly, I would just answer them honestly. I wouldn't really add, I wouldn't necessarily add on to it. I would just answer the questions that they have. Um, But I think that you let your kid drive that and let you know when they're ready. And I also think that you can create that sort of safe, Mm-hmm. environment by I don't know just encouraging them that they can talk to you about anything well it's and, my 13 year old came yeah. home and she was joking about the number 69 oh <laughs> and I was like do you know what that means and she was like not really so I told her completely yeah. what it meant and it's almost become I don't want to say a game but she'll come home with the new thing to shock me and oh, I'll yeah. explain to her what it actually means oh, how funny. but I feel like that's become our way of kind of communicating yeah. what it actually is and I was even like teasing her last night because she had said something about it again and I was like you're gonna have to explain that to your dad though because I don't know if he knows what that means and she's like oh my gosh no oh. <laughs> but it's been fun you can have levity to this it doesn't have to be this like sit down serious conversation because they're gonna hear stuff at school They're going to learn things from their peers. And if you assert yourself as the sexual authority in their life, then ideally they're going to come to you. They're going to come to you. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they feel like it's safe. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The the sad truth is a lot of the time kids get their sex ed from pornography, which is not, like, that's not real sex ed. I I Um, feel like a lot of adults are still trying to get their sex education from pornography. That is not the place to get educated. It's not real. It's not real. I don't know how many times we have to. (laughs) It's not. It's, there's some pornography out there that is directed by, um, and produced by women. Yeah. That's, um, 
more sort of focused on mutual yes. pleasure rather than yep. um, like straight porn can be can be not necessarily but it can be very degrading yeah. towards women yeah um, and and so yeah yeah it makes a huge difference um, well is there anything else you feel like we need to know about female pleasure oh gosh um, yeah, I would say, so I'm drawing on, like, that focus group study, mm-hmm. you know, that you cited. Yeah. Um, I would say that women should feel ownership of their own bodies. Yeah. And that it doesn't belong to, like, I know sometimes when you're in a romantic relationship, you say, you know, that's mine, or this is yours, and, but when it really comes down to it, that's your body. Yeah. It doesn't belong to someone else. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that if you want to pursue self-pleasure, then you should. Mm-hmm. And I also think that um, those things can be tricky to negotiate in relationships. Different partners have different comfort levels with that. So I think it's something you have to like converse openly and come to some understanding of, of you know, between the two of you. Mm-hmm. But... I also don't think it's healthy if a partner says you can't do that. Yeah. That's not, I don't want you to, you know, have self-pleasure. Um, That's a red flag for me, too. It's a little too controlling. I can understand maybe if both partners really feel that way, yeah. they both feel that way, then yeah. maybe it's a match made in heaven. Well, but I just, you know, and I, I can see saying I would prefer to be involved. Totally. But everybody has a, a relationship with themselves. They should. Yeah. And I could see, too, because I have seen where people are using, like, masturbation mm-hmm. to replace mutual intimacy. That and the other partner's true. feeling left out. Like, true. hey, I would really love to have intercourse with you. Yes. And we're, like, committed to each other. So, like, you're yeah. my person. Like, I could see that being. Yes. I've also seen people weaponize uh, that do. type of stuff. They so, make their partner jealous. Exactly. And so I'm like, yes. let's not play those games. Absolutely. But your relationship, your sexual relationship with yourself should be your own. Yes, yeah. I agree. It shouldn't be something that you intentionally use to hurt your partner. Yeah, It shouldn't be something where you withhold sex from your partner mm-hmm. and you turn towards masturbation because mm-hmm. whatever the psychological or physical barrier is, you're just more comfortable with that. Yeah. I think that then you need to talk to a therapist. Yeah. But at the same time, I just think that I've seen and heard a lot of young women who feel that um, almost like when they get into a relationship with a guy that they lack ownership of their own vagina Studies and what happens us. with it. And in our in our focus group study, mm-hmm. even like one girl said something about how when she was in a relationship, so this was in the young sort of college age heterosexual group, and she it was a study on on sexual pleasure, and she had mentioned that when she was she had a boyfriend and she felt like her vagina belonged to him so much so that she wouldn't even use tampons because that felt like cheating. Oh my gosh. And that was a really intense moment for me. I remember I just looked up and I like my mouth dropped and then I'm like, you have to hide that. Totally. Oh. And, and I just want, I, I don't want to tell her how to experience her sexuality, but I want her to feel ownership of her own body. Yeah. That's we should, but that's the studies. I just wrote a paper overlooking some of these or looking over some of these, and it was really interesting because I was studying masturbation specifically, 
And they found that single women had a healthy, happy relationship with masturbation. People in relationships suddenly felt like they were either cheating or they needed to fully save that portion of themselves only for their partner. Even if their partner wasn't fulfilling their sexual needs, they still weren't. And so their relationship with masturbation suddenly became very complicated. And it doesn't have to look this way. Mutual masturbation yeah. is a thing. Like, that can be incorporated into a partnership. Yeah. It, it requires communication, though. Yeah, it does. And, like, I don't want to... I'm sure that there's couples out there who both of them feel like that's not something they want to do. Yeah. And and in that case, that there's no judgment there. No. If, if both of you feel that way and you both are in agreement, mm-hmm. it's usually an issue if one person feels differently yep. and, and than the other. And... and in that case, you know, if, if you, if you get off on being like, no, that's, some people have, it's a little bit like BDSM play, yeah. like, like you can't touch yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm going to tease you and, and that's fine. As, as long as it's consent. consent. Yeah. Consent, right? <laughs> yeah. It just shouldn't allow other people to sort of exert control over you that you're not, you're not feeling or mm-hmm. feels like they're exerting their will on your sexuality or your body. That's Absolutely. not, yeah. you know. So, how do we talk to our partners about sex? I get asked this a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like these things come up naturally, kind of, in They're, comedy, don't they? They should, right? Um, yeah. I think that you could start asking about, like, past relationships, which is a normal combo, I think. Like, oh, who, you know, when, would, when did you last date, or mm-hmm. things like that. And you could sort of transition from there to asking about, like, you know, um you know, what kinds of things you enjoy or have you been tested recently yeah. or, um, you know, what does good sex look like to you? I think even if you've been together 10 years, that's it's a conversation. Change. Yes. Yeah, Once your favorite thing in yeah. bed, what's right your now, favorite thing? What's, what's your fantasy right yes, now? Yes. What's your fantasy today? Cause those things change as we change you. and we don't always talk about it. Even if no. we're committed to each other and together all the time. No. Yeah. No. And sometimes people have the same fantasy that they're just, have not shared with their partner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to ask you the question I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. How do you like to manage your period? How do I manage? I don't know. Praying for death (laughs) quickly. I just... (laughs) I've been blessed with, like, really horrifically painful periods. Mm -hmm. And I just... um, I take handfuls of ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. Um, I get heating pads and, like, you know turn it all the way up to high heat mm-hmm. and like just hold it against my body for hours and hours mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's just been you know, rough it's been rough also actually i do have a good tip mm. for the listeners here so um one thing that can help if you're prone to a lot of cramps is um especially if you have regular periods you can usually start a couple days before or if you don't have regular periods start the day it starts but cut back on the processed sugar because processed sugar is immediate fuel for your muscles. And so if you've got cramp and muscles Mm -hmm. and you're like eating the chocolate cake, which is, you know, (laughs) you're basically just pouring fuel on the fire. And so if you switch to more natural forms of sugar, like Mm -hmm. fruits and stuff, a couple days beforehand, or even just start the day of, it makes a big difference in the cramping. Yeah. That's how. Don't don't feel that muscle. Yeah, (laughs) just like, it really helps. Yeah. Yeah.
yeah that's awesome well thank you so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate it if you loved this episode of the vagina blog podcast please take a moment and write a review or share with your friends this podcast is built by listeners like you and it means the world to me that you're here today's podcast episode is brought to you by me I am thrilled to introduce you to Ruby, my new vulva plush pillow for all your educational needs. Ruby is unique because she comes with her own removable clitoris, the perfect tool for teaching all about female pleasure, how to use period products, and what the entire clitoral anatomy looks like, and more. You can find Ruby on my site, thevaginablog.com. Check her out and let me know what products you'd like to see next. If you love the music on this podcast, be sure to check out Pleasant Pictures Music Club for more. Eric does an incredible job of creating fresh, bold, high-end music for your films, videos, and podcasts.